0: Hi everybody and welcome to the Cultural Studies Podcast. My name is Toby Miller, and my guest today is
1: Documentary Filmmaker Jennifer Michael Dana Taylor.
0: Uh, Jennifer, it's a real privilege to be speaking with you. I'm here as a fanboy, sorry. But of course I'll be rigorous in my questioning.
1: Toby, I, I'm really grateful and, and that the fan the fan girl uh of your work um is responding so in kind. So thank
0: you so much. <laughs> so my, my first question is to ask you what's currently preoccupying, interesting, dynamizing, retarding, you know, driving you.
1: I think that the big thing that's driving me is probably something that's um, driving a lot of people right now around the globe, uh, which is um, how divisive and um, angry um, so much of our public discourse is, and how that's filtering into our um, personal inter and really our lived experiences, and at the same time, what what worries me or preoccupies me greatly is um, is making you know independent documentaries enough of a response, uh, knowing that so much of what's being driven is being driven by mass media, um, but am I as a citizen? and a person, Mm. you know, doing enough right now with with what I see as as being so many destructive forces in in so many places. Well,
0: I think every documentary filmmaker who's committed probably has to deal with that sort of dilemma always and everywhere at some level.
1: Yes, I think so. I think so. And I think, you know, there's a certain conceit about saying, hey, I care about the way the world is working, and what I'm going to go do is... Document it, and in a certain sense, engage myself. you know my work is very deeply engaged with the people mm. with whom I work, but I also have one foot outside you know the stories, and so I you know exist in this kind of half in half out um position, which is actually very privileged, right because I can you know uh depict what's going on um with different folks, I think as faithfully as I can, but I can also at the end of the day go home and you know probably have. In, in many instances, a nicer life than what I've been depicting. Um, but I, I don't think that's an unusual dilemma at all.
0: Uh, is it one that you're experiencing more now than in the past because you connected it to divisive public discourse?
1: For sure. And a lot of my recent work, I mean, really my whole body of work is a lot about, you know, how how people's, you know, exterior realities are depicted very flatly very monolithically by by other people or communities or forces that don't necessarily engage in the richness of those existences right so actually you know almost all of my work or actually all my work i think is about that sort of trying to illuminate the interiority of someone's lived experience um to revel in its richness and um and I, what I've encountered, I think, lately um, in the last few years with the last projects I've been doing, I've been really explicitly wanting to make them to engage with questions of political polarization, especially in the United States, um, you know, the rise of populism, the rise of, you know, sort of anti-other um But I I think that it's becoming a more urgent project as we look at what's happening globally um, with the rise of autocracies and with the way that mass media and certainly social media and really um, ideologically driven media are slotting us into categories and turning us, you know, certainly in the United States right now, um, you know, trying to promote this idea that we're actually enemies of each other rather than people who can coexist and agree or excuse me, agree to disagree. Um, so that's really, really concerning me. Another thing that I've been thinking about a lot. I was just um, mopping up this big oil spill that I <laughs> I just spilled olive oil all, all over my kitchen, and I was just thinking about as I was doing that, what frustrates me so much right now, particularly in the U.S. context, and I think this applies to other countries as well, is how much. Um, economic disparities are really being used as wedges to turn people against each other and how both the left and the right kind of tend to swallow this argument that if you're low income you must be xenophobic you must be hateful of others um, and that's a particularly i think strong strand right now in the us in our call in our political dialogue um and i'm really just don't agree with that you know when I when I work with people who who are in communities that um, don't have a lot of economic resources I, it doesn't necessarily translate I think into being a hateful and prejudiced person, and I think that's really getting used right now, particularly in the us could could you perhaps
0: talk to us about a film that I've only been able to see part of? I have to confess, uh, being in Spain means that some of your work is not as easy to get Mm. to as it was when I lived in the United States. For the love of Rutland. Mm
1: -hmm. Yes.
0: Because I think it touches on some of these questions. Yes. And I'm particularly interested, I mean, it's a slightly, well, stupid uh, narcissistic thing, but I was born in a part of Britain that gives Rutland its name
1: aha the the originator of the the strange name
0: <laughs> the originator of the strange name
1: yeah Indeed. um
0: mm-hmm. but in all seriousness uh you your subjects there the people you speak with address these issues in mm-hmm.
1: very subtle yes. way. yeah 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 and that that film and i'll um i'll i'll send you a a link so you can see it past the geo um okay. but that, that film um was uh something that i think really speaks to these issues that i'm talking about about the mm. way that mm. particularly people who are low income and and what is now a trope in u.s politics and cultural dialogue about the quote white working class mm. um mm. that that is the group of people that you know are lost forever to xenophobia and racism, et cetera. And, and the, you know, I had no idea what I was going into when I started making the film. Um, it was ostensibly going to be about this small blue collar town in Vermont um, that is uh, named for Rutland, England. Um, and it's a town of about 15,000 people, you know, kind of hard to gravel place, uh, bad opioid epidemic um and a lot of poverty and um the town's mayor in 2016 uh you know sort of what turned out to be a really pivotal year for both the uk and and the united states um uh the town's mayor decided that, that they should resettle syrian refugees and that touched off the predictable you know liberal conservative fights and you know people kind of immediately went to their camps um and I didn't want to make a story about that. I thought that was boring and flat. And why just kind of reify the predictable things of the good hearted liberals who want to bring the Syrians in and the nasty conservatives who don't. So I made a really concerted effort to find people that, that hadn't really aligned themselves yet one way or the other. And, um, you know, as luck would have it, found this just wonderful woman named Stacey who lives She's in the poorest neighborhood. She's incredible, incredible. and she's so much. She's amazing. She's she's yeah. brilliant. First of all, she's absolutely brilliant. Hi. She's got so much heart. She's got the deepest moral center. Yeah. She also is absolutely stone broke, and comes from a family that has really deeply embedded poverty and substance abuse. And she's, you know, when I met her, was in recovery from heroin addiction. Um, and over the course of us filming together for almost four years she really established herself as this kind of moral center of a universe that we don't see. Um, And, you know, she's confounding ideologically. She doesn't align herself one way or the other with the right or the left. Um, But over the course of us filming together, she really made a lot of effort to find out what was going on with regard to the refugee issue and other things happening in her town And ultimately, at the very end, you know, give it away that, you know, she kind of sees common cause with someone who's a refugee because she started, I think, to see herself as, as displaced in a certain sense, culturally and economically. And this is a town I should say that I lived in. We moved there from Los Angeles in the 70s when my idealistic parents thought we should get out of the um, you know, depraved city and moved to the countryside. And so we moved to this small town whose name always confounded us, Rutland. (laughs) Um, and you know, we had a, we always went back and forth to Los Angeles. You know, I had sort of a bifurcated, um, Ah. you know, childhood growing up in both places. But, but what I learned growing up in this town is that it's very cruel to the people who are at the bottom of its ladder, and it's not an it's not a racially diverse town in the least. Um, people couldn't wrap their heads around the fact that my dad was half Mexican. Like that just didn't register with them. Um, but 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 the town has a lot of poor people, and so those were the people that that the town kind of hierarchy you know really puts at the bottom. So Stacy, the, the woman who who really became the center of this film, would be called a quote dirtbag, and the people. The good-hearted liberals and the, you know, the, quote, nasty conservatives or however you want to look at it, kind of equally dismissed her. And they That's dismissed right. her throughout the filming. And so I meant this to be a critique of, 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 yeah. of the status quo. So, so,
0: there's a wonderfully poignant moment when she's quizzical and she's saying and thinking, it's not so much against refugees, it's just why doesn't anybody do anything for the rest of us who've been here our whole yeah. lives?
1: Yeah. Yeah. It
0: it really yes. well. And and I think for people outside the United States, the plurality of our listeners are in the US, um, mm-hmm. gender, but the majority is not. Yeah. And um Vermont is a very small state in terms mm-hmm. of population. It's in the yes. Northeast. It's famous now because of Bernie Sanders. Yes. One of the interesting things about Bernie Sanders whom I had the privilege of sharing a taxi ride with for half an hour. Oh, which was Really? Cool. I wrote a little essay called My Taxi Ride with Bernie. This was 20 years ago, and he'd just oh, cool. become a senator. Okay. One of the reasons why he could win a mayoralty, win the House representative seat, and win the Senate is because he knew how to listen yes. to poor white people and try yeah. to get them things. And he respected Republicans who disagreed with him. Yeah. Many of whom, when yeah. I've been there, would say things like, "I don't care if he's a socialist; he gets things for us."
1: Yeah, yeah. No, I think that's a really, you know, thank you for that that note about about Bernie and and um, you know, the state of Vermont, as you mentioned, it's it's tiny. Um, I think it has five hundred thousand people, something like that. Um, you know, it's a, a very rural state. It's actually one of the most rural. the united states um it's dependent on the dairy industry and on tourism and it does because of bernie and also ben and jerry's ice cream um (laughs) have a reputation as a very liberal place yeah yeah. and and indeed bernie was the mayor of of burlington which is the only significant city in in vermont and there's a saying in vermont of burlington's really nice and it's so close to vermont (laughs) <laughs> so the rest of the state is really pretty evenly mixed in terms of, you know, how the U.S. determines what you are, red being Republican, blue being Democrat. And so the rest of the state is much more mixed and it's not a given that it's, you know, socialist. But but there is something really important, I think, that Bernie Sanders and other, you know, of the few politicians in the U.S. have been able to do, which is they cut through that kind of misinformation that says if you're economically anxious and you also are white, that you are, de- you, you are bound and determined to join the racists. And and that's been a tactic forever, forever in the United States, particularly it was used, I mean, to instill Jim Crow, right. To say, you've got something to lose. Don't let these people get ahead of you, et cetera, et cetera. And, and I think it's a, it's a disaster right now, for media makers and particularly people that don't have experience in rural areas to assume that that monolith exists and because we you know you you can end up really reifying it so for example in the us after the election of 2016 really took a lot of people by surprise that you know the former guy won the election um thanks to the electoral college um you know you saw endless political Pieces done by coastal reporters who would go to a diner in a small town and say, "What's you know what's going on with you people?" But nobody, very few people, I think, are trying to look below the surface and and say, "Is there something else going on? Is there some other way that that we could form our communities and form our senses of ourselves that that wouldn't lead us inexorably down this path mm-hmm. toward mm-hmm. racial um, and cultural animus?" Well. Because that leads to disaster. Speaking
0: of Rutland and the fact that, in a sense, you were from there. Yeah. Right? You, you weren't the hippie chick from California arriving to make a documentary for PBS that would show people yeah. up. Yeah. You, know, you were a, a person who'd partially grown up there. Yes. And had roots there in Nuba City.
1: My mom still lives there. Oh, does she? Okay. She, she lives in a, a little farming town right outside the where my parents built oh. a house out on a you know big out in the middle of nowhere. My sister has moved back there from from New York, so yeah, so we're there. You've got serious now. roots there. Yeah. Yeah. And
0: and you've got some connection in some of your other films with your Mexican heritage and mm-hmm. other heritages. Yes. But how do you find the protagonists in your films.
1: Ah uh, yeah.
0: Well, how do you question. how do you locate them and identify them? And only tell me what you feel comfortable sharing because some of these things are oh, sure. you know involve personal commitments, I, I realize, and maybe even commercial inconfidence or whatever. But to the extent that you're comfortable, could you share with us yeah. how you meet someone in Rutland, how you meet someone in East LA? Or people oh, and then yeah. get close to them and realize you're my story, as it were.
1: Absolutely, yeah. No, I, I don't, I don't. Um, I mean, I actually, it's something I enjoy talking about, especially also when I teach, because I think, um, you know, at least in my view, making a, a documentary is an act of co-creation and collaboration, and and you know, there's all kinds of power imbalances inherent in that, and there's a lot of really interesting work being done in the documentary field about accountability and consent and, you know, um, making sure that co-creation as an idea, isn't just an idea, but, but that you actually really live mm-hmm. the commitment. So I, I feel very much that commitment. Um, right. um, and I hope I live up to those values. So it takes me a long time. Usually. Um, I have a, a little thing I think about, which is, um, often if you look right ahead for so for example in the film about Rutland if you look straight ahead all you see is the conflict the the evident conflict oh there's you know unitarians who want to bring in syrians and kumbaya and then there's all these people who you know are army veterans who don't want outsiders and i mean it's so boring and it's so typical right but if you so if you only look at what's right in front of you you that's what you're going to see but if you look out of your peripheral vision and really try to activate like what's not showing up in my peripheral in my center vision. That's where all the interesting stuff takes place. So it takes a long time. Um, and I think it takes a lot of listening. You referenced Bernie Sanders and listening. I think it's a lot of listening. It's a lot of, you know, going out for coffee or a beer or hanging out with people. Um and kind of I try to stay um somewhat still in a certain sense and not try, hmm. try not to make people feel like they're being too pressured. Like I really want people to feel that they can be safe and comfortable working with me and it could entail different kinds of processes. In the case of Daisy and Max, the film that you referenced that I made about um, another incredible woman who um, also Maybe. is a strong moral center. Mm-hmm. Uh, Daisy is a, a psychologist at this point she actually has her doctorate um and she's just working on
0: it when you made the film wasn't she she
1: was she was working on it and
0: and her ma and yes
1: yes and she fell in love with with a, a man named max who had been involved in gang activity as a younger man and then um had done what many people in in um kind of public service who work with gang violence do which is he became a violence interrupter. And so he he was putting himself into dangerous positions to try to dispel violence. But unfortunately he got caught up in a um in a RICO case against one of the gangs and some old charges came back to haunt him. And the FBI raided his and Daisy's house quite violently in the middle of the night and took their baby into custody. And put her in foster care um daisy had absolutely nothing to do with any of this and certainly um you know through her work as a as a public good person was working as a psychologist and counselor and also doing um violence intervention work um that that was the extent of what her involvement was but um nonetheless his past caught up with with the whole family um and so i you know followed that situation um and Daisy was the sister of someone I had worked with on a previous project about um, a unique high school in Los Angeles that is uh, community created for youth who have been either involved in the gang in in gang culture and/or the correctional system and often both. And it's a, a a school called Free LA and is really about educating youth and youth educating themselves to become activists for um, peace and also for liberation from mass incarceration so daisy's sister had worked with me on that project Um, she was a student at the school who became my my key collaborator in a small web series that we did for public broadcasting that was really about doing these films collaboratively very short films with the students
0: and so street knowledge yes Knowledge knowledge knowledge. Knowledge.
1: yeah 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 and so that and that's not that's kind of typical of often what happens and i i feel really strongly that that i should be able when i have finished a project i should still be able to be friends with that person and that we should have a relationship that they shouldn't feel burned by me and that we should feel that we've got some continuity so in the case of you know going from from claudia who's daisy's sister to daisy we already knew each other. Daisy knew me. Her Max knew me, and we had not intended to make that film about the oh, FBI. I hadn't realized that. How interesting!
0: Yeah, yeah, we were
1: going to make a film about gang intervention, <laughs> and wow. then literally four days before we were set to start filming, the the raid happened, and then Daisy and her family and I had to have and Al Jazeera, who who funded the who commissioned that film, we all had to really sit down and say, "Do you?" want to keep going do you want to keep working on your story and the decision was yes because you know something kind of terrible had happened and you know she she wanted to tell the story of what she had to go through to get her child back
0: there are Um, many terrible things in the film but the worst for me is what seems to be the case which is the feds and the state want to take a a baby and use her Right.
1: Yeah, that that and it wasn't anything that journalistically we could say with 100 percent certainty that that no. Had happened. No, um, we tried as best we could to verify. Was that really a tactic? And, you know, off the record, I talked to a prosecutor who said, you know, that is something that happens it's it's implied certainly strongly in it's the, what
0: the attorney said one of
1: uh, and it's what the attorney says his yeah.
0: defense attorney says it quite yeah. explicitly
1: yeah and so we had to obviously leave it with that's his assertion but but yeah no it's terrible it's terrible and mm-hmm. and the, the the trauma that they inflicted on on that family you know is i think again emblematic or or representative of sort of the larger trauma that those systems you know in in this case of you know um a really i mean you know the united states just has a shocking shocking um system of of uh carceral you know activity i mean the 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 way that people live in in particular communities especially you know communities of color and low income communities it's, it's it's pretty shocking um and we wanted to to show kind of what the shadow of that system is on the families and on the communities you know you see a lot of you know, films about people behind bars. I think those are very sensationalist. Um, it's it, you know, what, but what's the shadow that that system casts on people um, is what we were trying to you know explore with that and with that I, film. Because we we're going to make something very different, and then this thing happened.
0: Times change. I wanted to ask you about the music in the film. Mm, yeah, and the music really rocked me. It would. Mm. Few me, yeah, into feeling things, and sometimes I felt a little bit manipulated by yeah, it, yeah
1: kind of,
0: yeah and and I <laughs> don't mean that as a- i don't mean, I really don't mean that as a criticism, manipulated might be the wrong word, directed by it, yep, yeah. yeah. and I found myself thinking, wondering what would this be like if there were no music mm-hmm. 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 because Daisy, and there's also another woman whose name I don't remember who's an interventionist. Liz. Liz. who's fantastic. Yeah. And what would it be like if I just heard them yeah. and the attorney and Daisy's sister and Daisy's mm-hmm. mom, who's also yeah. fantastic. Yes. And I didn't have the music.
1: Yeah. It's a oh Toby, it's a really fair question. And um I would say in, in my own self-critique, I may have overdone it on on that one. I tend to use a lot of music. What I try to do in making Verite films is never put music under Verite. So if a scene is playing out in real time, I'll never put music under there. But in this particular film, I did use it quite a bit in montages, in place setting, and kind of because of the confines of doing this for TV and, um, you know, the kind of format that we had, also that we had to use the narrator because Max disappeared into the penal system, and although I went to see Max multiple times in prison. Did you? and talked on the, I did. That narration in the film is based on on Max's writing. And I went into to the prison, and they, they just would not allow me to interview him. I did record him once calling me, but then I went into the prison. They allowed me one pad of paper and one pencil, and they gave me, like, two hours to talk to him, and we basically sat and wrote that narration together. And it's terrific,
0: oh. by the way, and well oh, delivered. Well, thank
1: you. thank well. you, yes. And we found a great actor who's a very well-known yeah. Chicano actor to to do the narration. Um, but yes, yeah, so so I think, you know, it's a fair point that the music's pretty strong. Um, and, you know, we, we certainly used it too to underscore, I think, the gravity of some of the yes. situation. Yes, And also one thing about the music too the music is was made by a really close friend and collaborator of my name, Amatus Sami Karim Ali. Mm-hmm. And Amatus and I met when I was making a previous film called New Muslim Cool. Um, and she and I did some work together around showing the film and doing some music production around it. And we've continued to work together on on different kinds of projects. Um, and we're actually still, i just texted her an hour ago saying, let's talk about this one thing that we may do. Um, so that's another example of of one project that I make tends to lead to another. And New Muslim Cool, which is a film I made maybe, I don't know, 12, 13, 14 years ago. That that film had also an FBI raid in it and 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 sort of subject matter about prison. And that's actually what led me to do a couple of projects about about mass incarceration um you know i notice things often when i make a film i'm like oh that's that's a problem that's an issue maybe i should explore that further in a, in another project and daisy who's in daisy you know in daisy and max and stacy have become acquainted um and when i was beginning to work with stacy um she saw daisy and max and she said you know could i talk to daisy sometime about kind of dealing with drama and i put them in touch with each other and they have had a few conversations and You know, so so my goal in making these things too is to really feel like they're human, and that you know that that the the project exists outside of the the confines of of the film. Um, But but you asked about music, and I kind of went on a tangent. No, no, those other things. I uh, will confess that I do tend to be a little heavy-handed with it. No, that's
0: great, and I I just wanted to have my moment of being a bit wicked, a bit naughty. Yeah, it was music. I wanted to going off to a bit of a tangent I wanted to ask you about venues places because ah, I can't yeah. even begin to count how many institutions you've made films for but I'm thinking mm-hmm. there's Sundance mm-hmm. there's PBS uh there's the Atlantic there's Al Jazeera and on and on you know you're a very prominent famous successful documentary filmmaker who's deeply admired there's the fanboy coming out that I warned you. About. <laughs> and
1: Good that's to very you. nice because I would not think of myself that way at all. I just think of myself as a, is it Piker is the word? Like I'm just struggling along each day, like, am I doing this right? Should I be doing this? Well,
0: and it's only by doing that that you become the other <laughs> thing and keep being the other thing, I suspect. <laughs> but I wondered if you could reflect for a moment without necessarily, again, giving away trade secrets, as it mm-hmm. were, about what it's like, the difference between working for PBS and Al Jazeera, The Atlantic and Sundance and Uncle Tom Cobley.
1: Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, in the case of working with Sundance, they're they're one of the funders of my work, but they don't necessarily dictate do it this way, do it that way, although they do tend to give fabulous feedback and advice, as the best funders do when they have real experts um, on their staff. And so I've been really privileged to work with with sundance um as both the funder of my work and um uh also through labs that they do um and then in kind I've taught several classes for sundance's collab okay. platform okay. you know try to kind of keep keep the circle going that they give me a lot of support and I try to do the same um um I will say like the difference between working at a place like PBS or f- very, you know, we have a very strange system in the United States of public broadcasting. It's not a network. It's it's um, this kind of funny federalized system that um, was designed that way on purpose so that it wouldn't have too much power. Um, and so, you know, the, the public broadcasting service, which works together with the corporation for public broadcasting, is the public broadcaster of television in, in the US is the main one. And um and generally when you're working with PBS as an independent filmmaker, you know, the way that I have made mm-hmm. a lot of these films, I I actually keep editorial control. I can take advice, certainly, and and consultation, but but I have final cut. And what do I get back? for having final cut is taking all the financial risk um and doing all the work myself oh. um so there's no commission if you do if you do independent work um for PBS and there are two you know several main strands in which these independent films get shown you know POV independent lens America reframed and and so you're really working as an independent filmmaker cobbling together your budget working incrementally you know borrowing begging spending the night in your car, you know, doing whatever you need to do to get the work done. And then they, they may come in with some completion funding and a broadcast contract and some form of distribution. And you're doing that for the, you know, essentially the mission of wanting to tell these stories for public broadcasting. Um, so it's a, it's a great way to, to keep your um, autonomy I mean, obviously, you have to work with good standards of fact-checking and, you know, certain standards of of journalistic integrity. That's really important. But you do have final cut. Um, So in the case of working for a place like Al Jazeera, that's a commission, and they're going to have final cut and essentially make some decisions about um, what, you know, what the cut should be Um, and what you – do in that instance is the absolute best you can and you advocate for the story as strongly as possible um but ultimately at the end of the day it's going to be up to the executive producers um, to decide how how the how the cut will be finished but what you get in return is is you actually can get paid um not princely sums but something um so you know that's that's the trade-off i i have not um gone into the world of of the really high budget you know projects that the that the streamers are doing for example i've i've not um cracked that ceiling as it were to go into those kinds of projects um but i think uh you know those are essentially if if they're being done in house by a streamer you know they're they're um they're going to hold the final cut and i actually really like my independence and it's why i decided a number of years ago that that i would um become a a teacher and that i would teach at a university in order to be able to do my projects my way my deeply i think not very commercial projects <laughs> um and so for me that's the trade off um is is having some some cultural and artistic and and sort of even but I don't know money, I don't know if ideological is the right word, but you know, the, the kind of independence that I want to have to make my mm-hmm, work. Mm-hmm.
0: I wanted to ask you about teaching. So I'm so glad you just mentioned it. And you've mm-hmm. done that at Sundance, which for listeners outside the US is something that emerges from which Cassidy was Sundance Kid <laughs> and right. Robert Redford's ranch, and his support for independent filmmaking, mm-hmm. uh, and creation of workshops of a festival of a tv network and Mm -hmm. so on but you've also done this at a college level and at the university of california which is a public university wonder yes it is. yes so i wonder if you might reflect on that experience for us both at sundance and in the university of california
1: Yeah. Well well Sundance as a as an institution. Um the Sundance Institute, you know, as you mentioned, was was founded by um Bob Radford and, you know, started as a festival and you know, now I think a lot of people know it as as this big, you know, festival that happens in January where a lot of celebrities show up in puffer jackets and Ugg boots. But um <laughs> <laughs> but they do much, much more than that. Um and, and as you mentioned, they've got um really a robust program for um nonfiction. Filmmaking um, and I've been you know super just lucky to have gotten to work with them as I mentioned as both a, a supported artist but also as somebody who um, uh, helps them with their educational mission um, so I've done a number of of class it's actually interesting they've they started a, a online platform called collab about a year before the pandemic hit and so they were already innovating on um, online education and doing Zoom-based classes. And I helped them design a class about developing a documentary and um, then taught it um, with them for several iterations of that course. And so when the pandemic hit at the university um, that I teach at and we had to go to Zoom-based courses, I actually had just a bit more sense of how that was going to unfold. And so that was lucky um, as you mentioned, the University of California is, you know, uh, really a, a public policy miracle um, and the, the you know, jewel in the crown, I guess, of, of sort of public education as, as it exists in the United States, very different from other countries in the sense that, um, you know, college education is wildly expensive in the U.S. And actually, even the UC has become much more expensive than when my parents were. You know, students at UCLA back in the '60s, um, and that has to do with the attacks on the public sector in the U.S. Um, regardless, it's still um, one of the best, I think, public institutions that that we have, um, and our student body is very diverse and really represents California um, in a very deep way. So that means um, a lot of young people who are coming from maybe first or second generation backgrounds as, as new immigrants, you know, usually from the Pacific realm, um, including Latin America, you know, Mexico, also Asia. Um, and often their first time in their family going to college. Um, and so to me, it's a really, you know, when, and I know from my own family's history that, you know, the key role that getting um, a university education played in, in my own family's um you know success in history over over the last few generations, so um I just actually really love working there um and I feel really lucky to get to to teach there um and you know it's interesting working with the students I'm sure you also encounter you know people's um approaches to media production are changing um there's a lot more i think obviously interest and ability that young people have in making short work and You know TikTok and you know stuff i barely can understand i think higher levels of of facility with the technology um but what i still find is that um where it makes sense and where it's really satisfying to work with students is on the content is on the questions you asked me about how do you make a relationship with somebody Mm -hmm. how do you how do you you know really take your time to get to know somebody how do you break through your shyness that you're actually gonna have to go sit down and talk to somebody in person. You know, it's not gonna be, well, I texted them and they didn't answer back. Well, actually so you have to go sit down with someone and, and be with them in real space. Um, so that's the part I I love. Um, and the students are brilliant and super smart and often working a job or two jobs and going to school. And um I just love, you know, being able to Work with them and also be challenged by them a lot of the time. <laughs> um, so that's that's uh, I think what's been what's been gratifying about working in the university. That's but but, but it you. also drives me crazy that that our public sector is under so much duress. such yeah. yeah. Yeah, and also you know this just you know the attacks on higher education in the U.S. are just it, you know it's part of that whole thing that we were just talking about about the you know the attacks to divide us and you know, make us into enemies. And, you know, there's a really concerted thing going on right now with higher education in the U S and some of the critiques I actually think are okay. Right. Like there's some validity in critiquing, you know, do you send somebody to to college for, four or often five years because it takes them longer and saddle them with huge amounts of debt. And then what happens if there's no job market for them, but that's, that's not the university's fault. That's the economy's fault. So, um, yeah, so so it's it's despicable what's what's happening, I think, in terms of the anti-education rhetoric. And
0: um, Prof. Jennifer, I have two more questions for you, if I may. Of and then I'd like to invite you to add anything you want. My first one, you have a couple of titles that are really provocative. And you can probably guess the one I'm going to ask about <laughs> a short film that I have seen. Redneck Muslim. <laughs> and if ever there were a semiotically contradictory syntam, it's Redneck Muslim. <laughs> so I'm wondering if as my second last question, you'd do me the honor of explaining that and telling people about it because I think it's a fantastic title and an incredibly interesting contribution.
1: Oh. Well, thank you. Okay, well thank you. So Redneck Muslim. So I'm so I think this is gets to these things we were talking about about sort of polarization and false dichotomies mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and of course it's a provocative title and you know mustafa my my co-director and i knew that when we decided to call it that but the but it also brings this idea that yes you can have two apparently contradictory identities and actually be quite coherent as, right as a, right. you can have more than two i mean most of us do if we if we you know look in inside Internet.
0: um big time so,
1: and, and this title, I should say, is really, um, you know, was inspired by the main, you know, uh, participant of the film, um, you know, who's a, uh, a, a white man from the South, um, who grew up in a pretty, you know, he'll, as he says, he, 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 uh, was taught how to tie a noose by his grandfather. So he grew up in a pretty deeply racist environment in Philadelphia, Mississippi, which is where, um, three, civil rights order, workers were murdered in the 60s um and he became um he became muslim um as a young man and as he describes in the film you know he went through a, a phase that a lot of people go through when they're a new convert to whatever religion or cause they have which is he kind of went a little bit overboard and you know wore a thobe and a turban and sort of did things that he imagined are being is you know carrying out a Muslim identity and in his I guess late 30s 40s kind of realized you know that's really not me I'm a white guy from the south I just also happen to be at this point you know I'm a Muslim and he's also training to be a hospital chaplain and and give care to a very diverse group of patients so he decides over the course of the film that he's going to start a a non-profit called the Society of Islamic Rednecks um and, you know, we followed him in the film as he kind of tests that out and, and gets some pushback, um, primarily from a group of African-American Muslim leaders who, who I think kind of question is, you know, there's still some real inherent problems in in the construct. Um, you know, but he he it kind of articulates that idea that, you know, he says, look, being, being a redneck is a, is a badge of, of honor if you come from rural communities, it means that you worked hard in the fields. And, um, you know, I just want to strip this name of its sexism and racism. And that's an ambitious project. And again, not not one that everybody immediately kind of assumes is going to work. Um, but, you know, we wanted to at least show an example of someone who's really grappling with these questions and, you know, kind of challenging himself and also taking uh advice and realizing like oh maybe i need to kind of think more about how i'm how i'm kind of articulating these ideas and he's another person you know he he still he shows the film actually and does lectures with it you know mustafa who who made the film with me and i are you know always talking to him and um encouraging him to you know go for it with with the kind of work he's doing and he just is finishing up a master's in divinity Um, so, and, you know, just another kind of interesting, great person who has multiple identities as, as we all do.
0: Makes me um, think of just some wonderful writers that talk about the complexity of subjectivity. Yes. Identity and of the many persons contained within us. And just how important I think that is. Uh, Last question, Prof, is about you. And it's to ask you to talk about being Latina, you know, and being a woman. Um, Those things obviously combine. We were talking about different identities. But how those things might have informed your practice and maybe held back opportunities from you or not or given opportunities to you or both
1: well well i sort of i think of myself as very you know i'm really mixed i mean my mom is irish and you know her name's her last name's hanrahan i mean she's got red hair and blue eyes and and i have a very you know if you you, you can see me you, you can tell i have a pretty european phenotype and and um you know i certainly pass for white because i i am white presenting obviously um and my surname is anglo because my family changed their name when they came uh from mexico um so so i have sort of a sometimes a sense of myself as a little bit of a stealth (laughs) person of of latino heritage which which to me is um there's a so many people in california and elsewhere who i think have um Mixes, mixed identities and identities that are subject um to really outright racism and and prejudice and in in my case i it i don't read that way so I actually feel like I've got a privilege that I have to kind of um be true to my roots in a certain sense if that makes if that makes any sense and I also have a lot of cousins in mexico with whom I'm very close um and we still have you know kind of an ongoing relationship. So I feel like it's a real part of me. Um, at the same time, it's one I could have, um, dismissed, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and so I, I don't know if I'm making any sense, but, so I feel like that's, that's not anything that's, that's been, I would say an impediment for me. I I don't read in any way that, that I would be subject and I'm also middle-class. So I, so I've, you know, I've sort of, my, my family went through the gauntlet a couple of generations ago. Um, that said i think being a woman <laughs> in film production mm-hmm. is is still uh, universally pretty challenging um and we know certainly from you know the statistics that 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 men you know really dominate hollywood documentary film i think has more gender parity um but it's also a very undercapitalized uh part of the film world um i have to say though toby i don't i don't I feel like I've been given a lot of breaks and I'm pretty lucky, Um, particularly again, because I grew up in a, you know, pretty stable middle-class family. And Mm -hmm. and so I don't, I don't, I don't carry that with me a lot, I I guess. Um, But I, at the same time, I feel like if I don't honor my own complexity and subjectivity, then I can't honor somebody else's. And so it's really important to me to, you know, I mean, I was actually just thinking about this same question today, you know, would my, would my grandfather be proud of me, you know? Um, and, and those, those things, I don't know if it, that it's probably, that's the hardest question you've asked me, <laughs> but I also feel like it's really important when I, when I'm in the classroom, for example, with students, I, I can tell that we have a lot of students who are mixed, mm. you know, similarly, in, in a certain sense to me who who may come from like Anglo and Latino backgrounds. And I, I want them to feel seen and that all their parts matter. And that in the current regime that we have, that you don't have to hide yourself. Cause, cause my dad actually went through some real hard experiences, I think. Um, growing up in a, in Los Angeles in a very racist environment. And um, I, I, I don't, it, that's, it, I don't, you know, it's not our job to perpetuate that. It's our job to break it, if that makes any sense.
0: So beautifully said. Thank you. And I appreciate your deep frankness in all your answers, but especially that one, which wasn't meant to be a gotcha. Yeah, question, yeah. <laughs> but I did want to know about it because I think that both those statuses in terms of race, in inverted commas, and gender yeah. lead to in a. It, Institutional inhibitions in many cases yeah. can produce opportunities, but can also be coded by class, as you say.
1: Yeah, and I and I really think class is the thing that that is so dominant, and 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 again in the U.S. context, I think gets um, kind of elided because mm-hmm. the U.S. is so, um, you know, was founded. I mean, on apportioning power to people based on their phenotype and the understanding of their racialized identities and so i think that that obsession i mean we we see it playing out now you know um still really marks so much about life in the us i mean it it can't have i mean that's why this whole thing about saying we're colorblind is so frustrating because how can that be when the country was set up as a racial dictatorship <laughs> you know so so i guess i but I do feel sometimes really frustrated that about, you know, questions of class get, get kind of um, smothered. And I think actually that's, you know, where we started our conversation was about, you know, sort of, I guess, if, you know, lack of a better term, like, if there could be more class solidarity, you know. Um, and, and I would want to say one other thing. Um, so I have my new film I'm making in Montana, which is also a, a majority white state with about a seven percent indigenous um population so considerably more of a indigenous population in other states um that's still obviously a very low population um but a you know majority white white state that that has a lot of you know myths about the west right and lives a lot Mm -hmm. of myths about the west i'm making a film about sort of the the question of of bodily autonomy and privacy in a state that purports to um really say you you should live and let live but what happens when the state decides to really intervene in people's personal decisions about their health care in this case being abortion and gender-affirming care so making a film about about this and you know the last few projects i've made i've i've been really purposeful about wanting to go into majority white communities and and sort of push against um, ideas of monolith, ideas of identity, ideas of power, um, and, and ideology. And I can do that because, you know, nobody looks twice at me in those places. And so I've been really wanting to, to make those films and kind of, you know, almost, you know, anthropologically, you know, so frequently it's been, you know, white filmmakers going into communities of color or, you know, Middle-class people who have the means to make films going into poor communities, which is still, you know, something I'm I'm going to be guilty of, but but I'm just trying to kind of almost reverse that that anthropological lens in a certain sense, and and look at communities that they're, that purport to be the center, that purport to be the norm, and say, well, what what's going on here? Um, so that's that's a little bit of a also, I guess, extension of that last thing we just discussed about about you know my own way that I situate myself and and I also talked a lot to friends particularly friends who are black who said you know you really should you and and more white filmmakers really should be going to white communities and so I, I've taken that really seriously and to conclude I'm wondering if
0: there are things you'd like to add to what we've discussed points we've missed issues you'd like to elaborate on a little bit
1: Probably, I feel like you're. We were very comprehensive, and I probably have rambled a bit. Um, but I, I, I think um, I really thank you for giving me the space to talk about these questions. Um, and I, I think we've probably um, can't think of anything else that we we would want to discuss, unless uh, we could talk about wine in Madrid. But that's another conversation. We
0: can definitely have that conversation, and that would be fun. All right. Thank you very much, Prof. It was great chatting to you.
1: Thank you, Toby. It's really been a pleasure.